In today's episode of the Herbert Kane podcast, I'm talking to Lewis Conway Jr. in what I've titled formerly incarcerated to civil liberties strategist. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Simon Osmo. You can catch me every Thursday where I interview a guest who will share a story that will educate, inform or inspire. Now, Lewis Conway Jr. was convicted of manslaughter when he stabbed and killed a man over an unpaid drugs debt. He ended up spending over 6,000 days between being in prison and parole. But when he was released, he found himself in hospital one day having a precursor to a stroke. Now the doctor asked for his care directive. Lewis, realising that he might die that day alone with no one around him, he's gone on to transform himself and over 30 years later we're going to hear how he's become an author, entrepreneur and educator. Now Lewis was also the first formerly incarcerated to put his name on the electoral ballots when he ran for city officer in Texas. So this is so action-packed we're going to be in a part one and a part two so please join me as we we take a listen to my conversation with Lewis Conway Jr. in what I've titled Formerly Incarcerated to Civil Liberties Strategist. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, Lewis Conway, welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. Now, and I'm really excited for this um, conversation. We should say that you're currently a campaign strategist for the New York Office of American Civil Liberties, uh, a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you're a national policy advocate, uh, and also you're a former convicted felon when you spent over 2,000 days and 4,000 days on parole. So you've had quite a varied uh, background. But what I really love about your story, Lewis, is the transformation. And I'm really excited for, for my listeners to hear that. So again, you know, um, thank you for joining me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. The only two flags I would identify immediately is uh, I work for the national ACLU. Uh, I work out of the New York office. You know, there's some territorial stuff there. There's the New York ACLU, and then there's the national ACLU. Secondly, we like to use people first language. So we don't say convicted felons, right? We say formerly incarcerated, you know, just like, you know, folks are trying to stop being the worst day of their lives for the rest of their lives. And we feel like when we say someone is a convicted felon, as opposed to formerly incarcerated, we kind of limit um, that person's uh, growth and that person's ability to be something other than they were. But beyond that, thank you so much for having me. Well, and I like that beyond that because it's good. I've had my, my wrist slap there, but this, this is about education and, and sort of um, knowledge and growth. So uh, as much as I get stuff out of uh, my guests, uh, um, I know my listeners do as well. So, so that is great oversight to, to really understand because in our growth, in our transformation, sometimes it is very small words that we don't necessarily understand. And for me, you know, that was just what I happened to say. But for you in particular, like I said, you know, hearing that, you know, the conviction comes first, I totally agree with what you said. So um, hopefully no offense has been caused and that oh, has great no, insight for my, for my listeners. No, absolutely. It's just, you know, again, it's about us trying to put people first and just being sensitive about people's current conditions. Well, so let's talk a bit about your background um, then. So maybe tell us about your work that you currently do. So I know you got into the politics. Um, I, I took it from your bio saying you're a campaign strategist for the American Civil Liberties. So I'll let you deal with the politics, um, uh, Lewis, but tell us a bit about what that organization does uh, and what you do for it. 
Well, uh, ACLU for the last hundred years obviously has been involved with saving the civil liberties that were inscribed in the Bill of Rights. But in the last 15 or 20 years, we have been gaining a foothold on organizing and making sure that state-based work um, is also being played out along the lines of criminal justice work, racial justice. Uh, we're also doing a lot of prosecutorial uh, transparency work, electoral work. So the ACLU has a broad footprint and my um, section of that footprint is uh, specifically targeting parole and probation, working on reentry as a uh, strategy and not just a tactic, um, and also doing some being able to use my old career in the music industry, now in the advocacy place where we're engaging celebrities and organizations to use their, their corporate responsibility, if you will. Companies like Ben & Jerry's, uh, Sony. Uh, we just did um, a release party with Empire, uh, who was also supporting ACLU. So I'm able to use my old, my old life in music career and in my current career as well. Yeah, so what are some of the, the challenges that you face then in your day-to-day -day work? I mean, what, what, what challenges you in, in, in sort of work for uh, the American Civil Liberties? Well, just like with any large organizations, right, the, the work that we're doing externally to make sure people are seen as whole folks, um, some of that work has to be done internally. And so what I mean by that is, you know, as we are growing as an organization, we aren't as well versed in certain areas as we are in the law. You know, oftentimes you hear about the ACLU, we're often in court suing someone. You don't always hear about us at the grassroots level, we're working on probation and parole, reducing the amount of time and the amount of people that is currently locked up for a technical violation. You don't always hear our name attached to that. You often hear our name attached to pushing the envelope on certain issues, whether it be freedom of speech, whether it be privacy. So with me, the challenges are, because I'm formerly incarcerated, because I don't have a degree, um, because I work at a very large organization that, that values education and it values a certain pedigree, if you will. I think I still struggle with being a big black man uh, that has been convicted of a uh, violent offense in an organization that is growing in a way that we're trying to embrace folks with my background. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that, and I know when we spoke offline, uh, but it was uh, yesterday, a couple of days ago, but there's some more insight doing it better than the ACLU, right? The ACLU is the only one willing to get their feet dirty, get their hands dirty, if you will. And as we are getting it right, not afraid to get it wrong. So I just want to add that. Yeah, point. no, thank you, Lewis. And I should say for people listening, we're going to do this conversation in two parts because when I spoke to you, there was so much here that I wanted to unpack and there was some inspiration, there was some good, strong learning and there's some great transformation in your story and I wanted to make sure that we sort of share for those that could be in a similar position than yourself uh, or just those that are sort of troubled in life and trying to find their, find their path. So, um, you know, we're going to start this first conversation off talking about your former incarceration. Hopefully you like what I did there, uh, Lewis, using your term now. I'm, I'm, I'm a quick learner. We're talking about that. And then your transformation, then in part two, we'll sort of take it in a different position about sort of 
positive role models, how you came to faith and a few other things. So, so maybe tell us a little bit about, I mean, it was a key time in your life. I know you were a young man in your uh, late teens or early twenties, you know, when there was a, uh, you know, a tragic death of someone. Maybe talk us about um, what the, the law might call it a murder. Um, maybe just tell us your sort of um, circumstances to what led you to being convicted for um, voluntary manslaughter. Well, I mean, in short, it was choices, right? It was choices that I made that I wasn't forced to make. I chose to make. Um, unlike many of the young black men who, you know, found themselves in these cages due to over-policing and, and long sentences, um, I, you know, the first time I hacked a computer, I was 14 years old in 1984. The first time I was on the internet was in, in 1985, right? So by the time I went to college, I didn't have the same kind of background or exposure, if you will, as my uh, classmates did. So for me, ending up in prison was me deciding to make poor, poor choices on top of being big and black. Yeah, and so I guess um, you know, in relation to the um, the passing of the the person that he killed, do you mind giving us some insight as to actually what happened around around those events? Absolutely. I, uh, you know, as I said, I um, when you are in the wrong, when a fish out of water is going to do what he knows how to do, which is is flop around on dry land, right? And so I was a kid who was out of a fish out of water. I was trying to sell drugs without having uh, an experience of selling drugs. And so when I got robbed, I responded the way I had seen people in movies respond, the way I had heard people around me respond. And so when I got robbed, it I felt it was necessary for me to give back what he had robbed from me. Um, because I was in debt, obviously. And I can take a granular route to that story, but the overview, 30,000 foot view, is I owed somebody money for drugs. I got robbed of the drugs and the money I owed. I went to go get that money and, and drugs back. He didn't have, um, you know, the, the, the same attitude, I guess, about the transaction. And um, we ended up getting into an altercation. I stabbed him one time and he ended up dying a few hours later in the hospital. When me and you spoke, we, we, we joked about my former career as a, as a police officer and you said you wouldn't hold it against me. And it was, um, it, it, it did make me laugh. It was, it's a, it was a, it was a fun, fun joke, but, but there's a sort of um, a serious side to that um, story. And what I took from it was, was very interesting because the reason why I sort of, just brought up about me being a former um, detective is that uh, I want to make it clear to the listeners that you were the person that actually called 911 uh, and called the police and seek medical assistance. And that wasn't necessarily to hand yourself in. That was to make sure the person was okay, get medical assistance. And, and perhaps, you know, there was some type of remorse very early on. And the I reason, that, Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that, that, of the, yes, but also, I wasn't trying to run. Um, yes. I honestly, so there's a backstory there. So the backstory is he had just come home from prison from having um, an unlawfully concealed 
weapon. He was known as a shooter. Like that was his his reputation. So when I walked in, you know, and the words were exchanged, I was scared more than I was angry. And when he reached, he leaned over and I don't know if it was, because back then it was no cell phones. I felt like he was on for a gun. There was no gun found on the scene. I can't prove that there was a gun or not. But in my head, I was afraid. So I didn't feel a need to run. So when I called the cops, I guess you could say I felt justified in a sense. As a matter of fact, if you look at the paperwork in my statement, I said I I, I killed him in self-defense. Yeah, I mean, um, I didn't run. And I didn't feel like, you know. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, you know, and and we might touch on some of this in part two we definitely haven't got enough time in this podcast to unpack it but even as a as a young black man at that time knowing that you just seriously injured someone I don't know if you knew that he might have died at that point to to be the person to call 911 I I think there's a lot of power in that because uh, there's a lot out there that most probably wouldn't do that in your position because they'd be fearful of law enforcement be fearful of the outcome Uh, and like I said I just went away from our conversation thinking that there must have been some power going on that night because not many people in that position would call the police. They, they would run, particularly there had been a young black man of your era. So, I mean, it, it was inter- interesting to hear you sort of try and put logic behind why you did it. And it was perhaps because, you know, as you said, that you, you still feel that you sort of had to take this person's life in self-defense because of his, his reputation. Yeah, I felt remorse, right? I didn't feel, um, you know, it, I was... In, in that moment, I I realized that I had harmed someone, but I didn't go over there with the intention of harming him. That was not my intention. My intention literally was to pay these dudes back their money. Can I please have my money back? Was the conversation I was having with him. The conversation he was having with me was, F you, what are you going to do? And... You got to remember, it had been 12 hours between the incident. So for 12 hours, I had rehearsed this conversation. And F you, what are you going to do? I had never factored that response in to me saying, hey, man, I need my money back. So, um, yeah, yeah, it took me a while to wrestle between anger and remorse, right? Um, I never had a maliciousness towards him. And interestingly, you know, when I think and sort of reflect on what you've just said, um, I I look at you here now, we're going to move on to your story of transformation in in, in a minute. You know, you're a very different person than um, what you were now. Because I think in contextual time, uh, this is around 30 years ago, Lewis, is that right? Absolutely. I was 22 years old, so yeah, 28 years ago. Yeah, so around first, so yeah, a lot can happen in that that twenty eight years. So I guess, how do you? Uh, and maybe this is a difficult question to to answer, but how how do you twenty eight years later? Do you still wrestle with the fact that you took someone's life, or have you come to a good place through your transformation that you can accept what you've done, or do you still have these feelings of remorse? You know, where are you today in relation to that life that you took? You know, 
God enabled me to experience compassion from someone I had harmed deeply. And I met Derek's, that's his name, uh, my, um, the person who I ended up, uh, who was my victim, as they say. Um, I met his uncle when I had taken a plea bargain and I was headed to prison. He told me that he was his father. I didn't find out it was his uncle until I ran for office. So for many years, I thought it was his father because that's what he said. When he told me he forgave me, when I was 22 years old, that shaped the way I did time. That shaped the way I, and, I, and that's probably why I sought solace, right? That's probably why I, I was seeking, you know, the spiritual comfort of religion was because he had forgiven me and I was trying to figure out a way how to forgive me. And it took me, uh, I want to say I was 40-ish before um, my sister told me, everyone has forgiven you except you. Wow. So maybe around 20 years after this inf incident was when you could find that forgiveness and, and that peace. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and it took I a not about peace. You said peace. <laughs> I found peace after that, right? Now, yeah. yeah. Right? Because it's not a, a, a estimation as much as it is a process. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so the, the peace, I think I'm still cultivating. Yeah, um, yeah. At that time, I definitely didn't have any peace. You know, I was still storing coke and popping pills, TJing in the, <laughs> in the strip club at that time. So, and well, so let's dive us into your transformation because there's a there's a long time surrounding your story, isn't there? From being this young guy in his twenties to where you are now as a sort of uh, you know fifty year old man. And I know uh, when we spoke about sort of transformation, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you told me it was a very poignant time in our conversation about an incident you, you call me told me of a specific day you know february the 6th 2015 when when you suffered a precursor to a stroke um and that when you're in the hospital there was a lot of transformation it really started from from them so maybe tell us a bit about that incident at the hospital that really brought you to uh, a sort of pinnacle time in, in transforming yourself i believe that's where i can say the where everything that I had, had experienced began to make sense and it stopped being a disability and it became an ability. And so February 6, 2015, I found myself in the hospital uh, suffering from uh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, my pulse was at 145 and the doctor was asking me questions about a will and a an advanced directive. My phone was dead. I didn't have any friends or family there. And I didn't, you know, in that moment, I realized if I died, I was going to die alone. And I had just recently come into Les Brown via The Secret. And I used to listen to Les Brown on my phone every morning on YouTube. And, you know, he tells this story about uh, Miles Davis. I thought Miles Davis, Miles. Monroe talks about the richest place in the world is the graveyard. And he said, the graveyard is where dreams have gone to die, is where 
books and, and plays and, 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 and scientific discoveries have gone to die. And so in that moment, you know, he talks about the best way for a man to die is surrounded by his family, right? He said, but what happens if you're there alone and there's these angry eyes staring at you that call themselves dreams and the books you were supposed to have written and the things you were supposed to have done and they're staring at you with angry eyes and they're saying that we came to you and now we have to die with you. And so, um, you know, it sounds cliche and it sounds dramatic, but that's how it hit me. It was like, I didn't have a flash of, you know, light going past my eyes or, you know, how they say your life flashes in on your eyes. The doctor was calm. I was seeing a uh, pulse racing. Um, you know, the machine was beeping. Um, and I struck a deal with God. You know, I, and I, I, you know, to this day, I, I can't imagine, I still can't fathom what made me think my life or my story was something of value. But that's all I had in that moment. And it's something that, I realized for since I had gotten out of prison, that's the only thing I had never told anyone. I had had always hidden my story. There was a very select few that knew my story because I was always judged by it. And in that moment, you know, I did what any good convict would do. I plea bargained. Right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I asked God, you know, if you let me live, I'll tell my story. And, um, one of the doctors, my heart was beating, it would drop a beat. So it would beat three times and drop a beat. And then it would beat out of, out of rhythm. There was a doctor, he was a, uh, he was a East Indian guy. He came in and they had to shock my heart back into rhythm. And when I came to the next day, you know, everything that I thought mattered on a scale became very, very tiny, right? Every, you know, gold album I thought I wanted, every platinum artist I thought I wanted, every house, every boat became very, very tiny. And I became ashamed because I, I felt like that's all I ever wanted. That's I mean, that's it. And so in that moment, you know, God let me live. And I told him I would tell my story. I didn't know what that meant in that moment. I just knew that that was something I was going to do. So, and it happened right there in that in that hospital room, just from you know from that conversation with with a doctor asking for your you know your care directive and do you have a will was clearly a signal. You know, a doctor only really says that to you when they believe that you might not be coming out the other side, and it was enough to sort of start that that journey and it's and it's interesting i know you mentioned the secret and i think there's a story there as to how you sort of um how you became aware of the secret and that really also changed your your transformation i was shocked to hear that you'd worked in an antique store and it was an old white lady that gave you a secret so <laughs> i was thinking this big you know i imagine this big six foot black guy you know uh heavy set what's he doing working in an antique store and an old white lady know, old white right? lady gives you a secret but maybe tell us that story that shows you how hard I was working to just be normal, right? I, you know, when I came home from prison, 
the music industry was the only industry that didn't do a background check. And so I was able to, to stay employed, you know, through being an audio engineer, studio engineer, musician, songwriter, and then I got into video production. When I met my uh, former wife, when we first met, she was my banker. And she was from Fort Worth, but I met her in Austin. And when the music business part, you know, when the music fell apart, we moved to Fort Worth. And I decided I was just going to be normal. I was going to, you know, go to work in a, even though I knew I was unemployable, right? Um, and I ended up getting recruited as a cashier for an antique mall, antique store. And you're right. I had never worked around antiques before in my life. I knew absolutely nothing about antiques, but I had a fast 10 key and they needed a cashier and I had a vast experience as a cashier. So when I got hired, I ended up working on the floor as a salesperson, which meant I had to trudge around. It was like a 5,000 square foot mall with all these nooks and crannies of, of these privately owned yeah. Anyway, so um, there was a lady, uh, Cindy, Cindy Vance Young. Um, she would see me walking by, and I'll tell you, I, I had lost everything. I, I hated my life so much that I, I used to drive past my, my job like I didn't have to go there, and then I would go down the block, turn around, and pull in. Um, I hated my life, you know, I had lost my mom, I had lost my uh, my oldest children through a custody battle, um, I had lost the music industry, I was in the process of losing a marriage I thought I was on a in forever, uh, we had just had a son, so I knew I was about to lose our relationship with him, um, it was a perfect country song, I had lost my truck, uh, the only thing I didn't have to lose was my dog, right? Yeah. So <laughs> um, Cindy stopped me one day and she's like, you know, Louis, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, I'm reading this book and if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. You know, I'm mad. I'm in my own head. Oh, okay. Oh, white lady. Okay. That sounds good. She's like, no, Louis, seriously, I don't know how to explain it, but it's called a secret. And I'm like, yeah, it's a secret because I don't understand what you're talking about, <laughs> right? And um, so I ended up going on YouTube. I found a trailer. Uh, it was a 20-minute trailer, and I watched that trailer for two months straight every morning. And slowly but surely, bit by bit, incrementally, I began to uncover some of what was happening that was causing the same thing to happen. And I began to connect my thinking with what was my feeling and my feeling beginning to manifest in my life. So I was thanking myself as this horrible person that had to kill someone and I would never be worth, um, you know, I deserve every loss that I have, which made me feel a certain kind of way, which meant I manifested what I was feeling, which was more of the bad stuff, right? And so once I learned that, and once I realized that my conviction is what I had been hiding, and if I if I stop hiding that conviction, I could feel better about me. 
and me feeling better about me would create a different manifestation from and of and by me. Yeah, and within all that, the reason why I wanted you to tell that story is that, you know, you go from this being in hospital and the doctor giving an indication that, you know, your health isn't in a good place and, you know, um, to have this care directive to, to meeting this little sweet old lady in this antique store that tells you about the secret. In reverse. Uh, oh, in reverse. Was it? In reverse. In reverse. Okay. So I, okay. I, I got turned on to the secret first, not really understanding it. And then in 2015 is when I had the... Health health opportunity. Okay, yeah. And I know it then moved you on to, you mentioned another person to me, Kevin Trudell, uh, your wish is your command. You know, James Allen, we've got in there and it led you to write your own book as well, Change the Weather Beyond the Storm. So, I mean, well, when you look at your own transformation then, sort of post-conviction, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, what do you what do you say to others now when you're an advocate? What do you say to others about transformation and how can they change their lives? What what are one or two sort of nuggets that you, you give people that you interact with about how, how they can seek the type of transformation and reform that you've gone through? You're not the worst day of your life for the rest of your life. You are not that worst incident that you did or happened to you for the rest of your life. Someone else's opinion of you doesn't have to become your reality. You are greater than you can ever imagine. And there is things inside of you that if you choose to pull them out as gifts, you will receive the promises that God has um, bestowed upon us. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's a tension between my two lives, right? I have a professional advocacy life, and then I have a life that kind of almost conflicts with that advocacy life, right? Because in my advocacy life, I'm saying that there are systems that have historically, systematically reduced the opportunities for people of color and people who are poor and people who um, are LBGTQ, right? But on this other side, I realize that if I blame the system and I don't take full accountability, then that continuously puts me in this place of not uh, being able to manifest the best things in my life. Yeah, and it's great insight. And I say one thing about your transformation, I think you'd mostly agree with me that, you know, your transformation isn't finished right now. You know, you're, 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 you're still working on that. And when we talk about, you know, the reading, you know, I interview a lot of people um, such as yourself and everyone is very well read, very, very well informed. You know, James Allen, as a man thinker, is one of my um, key moments of sort of transformation. But do you, do you always sort of tie into being sort of well read and being informed by others? Or do you believe this transformation came from within i know that you're you're now a man of faith but um what what do you think started it was it having other positive influences in your life or, or did it really sort of come from within perhaps god was calling you in a certain direction what would you say to that i would say that you know i grew up a preacher's kid and i grew up with a mama that prayed right i grew up with a, a mama that exposed us to education of the negro that that expose us to destruction of the, of, of, of the black civilization that that you know made me read autobiography as of the of Malcolm X as a punishment because I got in trouble at school so 
my faith, I've been chasing God, it feels like, all my life, right? Um, I, I shared with you, I was baptized as a Mormon at 15, and then I accepted Islam at 21 or 22. Um, you know, I think for me, it has always been a matter of um, that transformational moment happening over and over. Right, like every every day, it feels like I'm I'm learning how to use these these technologies. Every day, I'm learning how to use faith in a tangible way. Every day, I'm I'm learning how to use a belief in a in a visceral way, as opposed to this mystic kind of esoterical way. My education came from me just being a nerd. Like when I went to prison, I would read the dictionary. Like anybody will tell you, when you go to prison, you'll read the back of a of of, of a soda can just to get some. Like you read, right? Yeah, right. So um, there was this young kid when I first got locked up. His name was Swift. He would read the dictionary. I thought it was corny, and he would take a Webster's, and then I began to read from A to Z. Like I took a Webster's, and I began to read 10, 15 pages uh, every week. But before that, I mean, every day, before that, though, I had a debilitating stutter up until I was 17, 18 years old. Like, I couldn't even read aloud. I couldn't talk aloud, right? My stutter was so horrible that it was really, you know, again, it was part of my anxiety that I feel led me to be the person who resorted to to stabbing that guy, right? He didn't get everything that happened that night before. He got all the teasing that I had been through for, you know, 20 odd years of being a fat kid that stuttered, right? So for me, the mentors in my life came after I embraced my conviction, you know? Um, the early mentors for me were Glenn Martin, um, uh, people like uh, Bill Cobb, people like uh, Sean King, you know, people that came to my rescue in a time of need. Lewis, you know, as we start to wrap up, you know, we're going to do this as part one, part, part two, because, because there's so much in here to, to get through. But, you know, I'm very grateful of your openness, uh, of your chat and your your willingness to sort of share around your transformation to try and help help others and um i stand corrected now but i know it's a former convicted felon and not a convicted felon so you've taught me something so it's um this is what it was um this podcast is all about so so lewis thank you for um, for joining me and i just want to say that covered a lot of stuff with, with lewis and hang around for part two which will air um a couple of weeks in time where we're going to talk about uh, lewis's positive role models talk a bit more about how he came to faith and also he started to get into a political career so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that in in, in part two lewis conway jr thank you for for joining me thank you so much for having me Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.